This is Midwife Speaking, the podcast about the human experience of pregnancy, birth, and babies. We aim to help people tap into their own power to make informed choices from the heart with evidence-based information. Our midwife is Carrie Duncan, certified professional midwife and licensed provider in the state of Oregon. And I am your host, Jessica Martin-Weber, founder of The Leaky Boob. For more of Midwife Speaking, including birth stories and information, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Midwife Speaking. Find Carrie on Instagram at The Wise Woman Next Door and Jessica at The Leaky Boob. Want to share your pregnancy, birth, or postpartum story with us? We'd love to hear from you. Please email birthstories at midwifespeakingpodcast.com. Your story may be just what we're looking for to share and connect with others. This is Midwife Speaking. Last time, Carrie, you shared your introduction to natural birth with your birth stories and how you ended up becoming a midwife, really your birth as a midwife. And today I'm going to talk about my introduction to natural birth. Great. My first birth happened in a hospital. It was a planned hospital birth. And I had attended actually a home birth once before when I was 15 years old. I was the babysitter for a family that was having a planned home birth. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's a sweet introduction. (laughs) It was. And I really loved the experience. I got to bring the kids in to watch their little sibling be born. And it was really neat. I really loved it. But when it came time for me to make my choice, I was really overwhelmed and thought, well, what you do really the safest option, that was kind of how I thought of it was to have a hospital birth. So I determined that I wanted to have a natural birth in a hospital. Yep. Lots of people go in from that angle. (laughs) Right. And I chose my OB, my care provider, based on who was available. I did some research. They said things that sounded like they were very supportive of natural birth. So it sounded good to me. I didn't really know what I was looking for, though. And and this was quite a while ago. This was... 21 and a half years ago. Oh, my word. Yeah, we we were all babies... Back then, having babies. I mean, 20-year-olds having babies, but still. (laughs) I was 20, and Uh I was uh, really excited to be expecting my first. My pregnancy ended up being nothing like I had expected. I was going to have the perfect natural pregnancy. I was going to only eat organic food and lots of vegetables. At that point in time, when I got pregnant, I was vegetarian. And so I expected to be able to continue to eat vegetarian, but I had a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum, which is just Latin for lots of throwing up in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I threw up so much that really it became any food that I could get in. And Mm -hmm. that was kind of what my whole pregnancy ended up really focusing on was getting through Mm -hmm. the pregnancy. And I was in and out of the hospital quite a bit for dehydration and for other issues related to that. And so I didn't spend a whole lot of time really getting to know my provider because that things escalated very quickly from, I didn't have a normal prenatal exam. It was pretty much, you're pregnant. 
oh, you're very dehydrated and sick. So your the focus of your pregnancy kind of shifted from enjoying the pregnancy and kind of basking in that pregnancy to managing some, you know, fairly simple but overriding complications. I mean, not not to say that hyperemesis is a simple complication, but it is, you know, fl re fluid replacement and, you know, it doesn't um, make you a high risk necessarily birth. Exactly. In fact, we never really even talked about the birth because we were so busy trying to manage the pregnancy complication. And at that time, I wasn't officially diagnosed. I wasn't diagnosed until I was pregnant with my third baby with hyperemesis gravidarum. And so, which changed the course of treatment. Once there was a diagnosis, yeah. that changed the course of treatment drastically. But with my first, I wasn't diagnosed. So we were always kind of behind the eight ball, so to speak. Mm -hmm. We were always trying to manage what was already an out of control situation with dehydration. Yep. So I, when it came time for the birth, uh, I'd had a, an earlier complication at 32 weeks. I had a hind leak uh, in my bag of waters and that became very concerning. I was admitted. It was determined that my baby had asymmetrical intrauterine growth retardation and there were all these measures taken. So everything was very in the moment and we never really got to kind of prepare for the birth itself. Yeah. So were you hospitalized from 32 weeks? I was hospitalized for about a week. I was put on steroids. Yeah. I was hospitalized for about a week. They did this experimental procedure that actually they don't do anymore. Apparently it was a very brief period of time. Uh, they injected a blue dye into my, my amniotic fluid and then had me insert a tampon and we would see how much I was leaking. Wow. 20 years ago. <laughs> They don't do that anymore. No, I've never heard of that in my life. <laughs> I didn't know it was an experimental thing until years later. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so I was 32 weeks and they did an amniocentesis, injected this blue dye. I was kept in the hospital. They were monitoring my leakage. Turned out I had too much amniotic fluid, uh, really, so it was okay, but they were concerned about the baby's growth. Uh, and then I was released, sent home, pretty much put on bed rest, uh, minimal mm -hmm. activity, no pelvic activity, that kind of thing. And then I started realizing maybe I should get ready for actually giving birth. And I read The Husband Coach Childbirth, it's the Bradley Method, mm -hmm. and my partner would practice breathing and relaxation exercises with me, which was about all we could do because I was mostly on bed rest anyway at that point in time. And uh, I actually went to 41 weeks and four days. Oh my gosh. I'm surprised they let you. I am too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think they were so They, they were so concerned after all the complications that I had had. Uh, and I wasn't really high risk, obviously, uh, yeah. be because I ended up going on to have a vaginal birth, uh, just, mm -hmm. just fine. Mostly just fine in the hospital. The birth itself was pretty uneventful. I did mm -hmm. start having blood pressure issues right at the end. So pregnancy mm -hmm. induced hypertension right at the end, but I was not preeclamptic uh, right. necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe right, right at the very end, they started to consider me as having preeclampsia. So I went into labor naturally, all on my own. Mm 
mm-hmm. which I think none of us expected to have happen. And uh, I finally had started being able to eat the last couple of weeks of my pregnancy. And so as soon as I suspected I was maybe in labor, I actually talked my husband into taking me out to dinner because I wanted real food. I and bet. Oh, <laughs> so we went and ate dinner and I ate like pie and onion rings and all this stuff that I hadn't been able to eat and figured I probably wasn't going to be able to eat. I'm really glad I did that because once I did get to the hospital, I wasn't allowed anything else by mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I always have- coach people that have to go in, um, like, you, you know, for induction or for any reason to go eat a big meal first. <laughs> I'm like, go eat, go eat everything that you want. Um, <laughs> before you go in, I don't think I would have made it through just energy wise. If I hadn't eaten, yeah. I don't think there was a chance. Uh, it ended up being a pretty textbook labor in many ways. I was put on at the time, uh, magnesium sulfate, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is not fun to be on. It made me really, really hot and extremely thirsty. But I wasn't allowed anything by mouth. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, so I had the IV for that. I had the blood pressure cuff on. It was an automatic blood pressure cuff. It made it really hard to relax through contractions just to have this thing going off constant monitoring. Uh, so positioning was a challenge. I couldn't shift positions well, uh, but somehow managed through a 12 hour active labor in the hospital. And uh, I will never forget Carrie when <laughs> the urge to push came. And I remember being concerned I wouldn't know when to push. And then mm-hmm. I had the urge to push and I was, oh, you cannot miss this urge. Yes. Actually, I, um, a midwife friend of mine gave me the best words for it. Um, and I have said in the past, it's kind of like throwing up and she goes, yeah, but it's like throwing down. Yes. And I was, I appreciated that so much because that's exactly what it is. It's the opposite of like the urge, like when you're going to vomit, it's yeah. the other way. So it's throwing down and I will use that forever now. <laughs> That's exactly what it feels like throwing down. It was so overwhelming and so intense. But uh, my doctor wasn't ready or was, uh, so I was told not to push. I was told that I I couldn't Mm -hmm. push. And so I really worked to breathe and relax. And it turns out that the body pushes anyway. (laughs) And we almost had a precipitous birth as the nurse at one point told me, I told you to stop pushing. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not pushing, but you're going to have to catch because <laughs> I could, there was no stopping what was happening. My baby was coming out. Yep. So the doctor made it and time. I mean, now I know. <laughs> they were busy. <laughs> doing something else. They probably weren't in the room. <laughs> yes, they weren't in the room, but the doctor made it caught, caught my baby. I, yeah. Everything was fine. They actually, when they held her up to me, uh, I was really, really tired and they held her up. And the first thing I said when I saw her was she's huge because they told me to expect this five pound baby. And I had an eight and eight pound, five and a half ounce baby. Oh my word. Okay. I have so many thoughts about that, but I will hold them back. So I had had an ultrasound every single week from the time, uh, from 32 weeks on. And the whole way through that, they kept telling me this was a very small baby. She wasn't growing well. There were lots of concerns. There was a discussion about inducing 
early because of size, but because there were some other issues, they wanted to give us as much time as possible. And she was growing a little bit each time. So they let us, I don't like using the, that phrase, but they did let us continue. It's probably appropriate for this situation. It is. I, mm -hmm. I it's, it is. Yeah. <laughs> So she was born, she was huge. I was in shock at how big she was. They let me have her on my chest and 21 years ago, that was a pretty big deal. I got to mm -hmm. hold her uh, skin to skin and kind of, I don't really remember a lot of what happened in the immediate after my, my partner was there fawning over her and uh, supporting her on me. I remember his arms around me and all that kind of stuff. And at some point I started feeling really, really awful. Uh, I, I, the best way I can describe it is, is, is like I was falling into this gray haze and I suddenly didn't feel like I was there. I wasn't yep. able to be with everything. And they were doing things down at my crotch. <laughs> and yeah. They had showed me the placenta came out and the, the doctor asked if I wanted to see it. And I said, yes. And as she was showing me the placenta, I was starting to just feel so incredibly awful. And then I saw this look of concern on her face. And you she, were probably turning gray. I believe I was probably <laughs> very gray. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, okay, that's great. And then kind of went back down between my legs and I, everything kind of suddenly took off. Things got very busy. Somebody took the baby off of me, kind of thrust my baby into my partner's arms and uh, told him he needed to hold the baby and stay out of the way. And he held my hand. I think I asked what's going on. And I heard what sounded like somebody was pouring a cup of water or a pitcher of water. It just sounded like a pitcher of water pouring on the floor. Mm -mm. And uh, there was a lot of action happening and they were placing a second IV all of a sudden. I was trying to ask several times what was going on, but my words weren't coming out very clearly. And then my doctor told me, they were uh, touching my belly. Uh, they had removed the drapes so that they could have more access because uh, I had been draped, but there had been a mirror so I could watch my baby emerge. And they the weirdest thing. Where you could see everything, but we're still putting this drape between you and the, I don't know. But they removed the yeah. drapes, they uh, lowered my, the head of the bed down so I was more flat. They, they were, uh, they were just, there was a lot of activity, kind of a whole flurry of activity. And then my doctor told me, uh, Jessica, this is, this is probably going to hurt. And at this point I still didn't know, but it turned out I had a partially retained placenta and she went in to manually extract that. And my partner told me later that her arm disappeared up to her elbow inside. I just remember the worst pain I've ever experienced in my whole life. Uh, I don't, I don't remember much else except that she told me to hang in there. And I remember screaming. I remember my voice and I remember, uh, holding my husband's hand and, uh, I found out later I was smashing it against the stirrup. I don't remember that. And the next thing I remember was they were helping wake me up. I passed out and I was receiving a blood transfusion. So I had hemorrhaged pretty badly, retained, partially retained placenta. So that meant there were chunks of my placenta still inside me 
or chunks of my baby's placenta still inside me and my uterus wasn't clamping down and contracting. So uh, blood was just kind of pouring out of me. And that sound I heard that sounded like a pitcher of water being poured on the floor was actually my blood. I ended up being in the hospital uh, for about three days longer than normal at, at that time. And I somehow breastfeeding still worked. <laughs> um, I had, I had milk. I received about two liters of blood uh, and we ended up fine. I had a fourth degree tear as well that had to be stitched up. And uh, I ended up actually having to have reconstructive surgery later to complete that repair. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, we made it through. And then the next baby, the next time I was pregnant, I went back to that same OB. Which, which was how long afterwards? Two years. Two years two later. Years. Okay. So okay. two years later, I was expecting my, my second baby and I went back to the same OB because that was my doctor. Mm -hmm. And in that appointment, my very first prenatal appointment for my second baby, I asked, how do we avoid that happening again? I don't want to bleed like that ever again. And she told me, I think that's just how you're going to give birth. That's just what your body does. And I remembered that birth I got to attend years before and mm -hmm. I decided I was not signing up for a repeat <laughs> and I walked out and I canceled my follow-up or my next prenatal appointment and I went home and I started looking for midwives and decided to call several midwives and all of them that was the question I asked what do you do about immediate postpartum hemorrhage what do you, how do you avoid it happening in the first place? I ended up calling about eight midwives within the course of two days, determined to find somebody who could take me on as a client and would be able to address my concerns. And so I asked every single one of them how they handled postpartum hemorrhage and how they prevented it. And it was in the course of the conversations with these eight incredible human beings who gave me so much of their time just to even see if maybe it would pan out for them to be a provider for me, that I learned that what I experienced was probably in large part due to mismanagement of the third stage. And the third stage being when the placenta is delivered. And in the course of asking these midwives questions, they asked me questions as well and what I remembered. And I had the chance to later review my chart with a midwife and and with a doctor even after that and realized that yes, in fact, my third stage was probably very mismanaged and that is why I hemorrhaged, which meant that I was actually a good candidate for home birth because my hemorrhage was caused instead of just something that I do, <laughs> unlike what my doctor told me, which was, this is just how you give birth. It was something that could probably be prevented and avoided in the future. And in fact, I went on to have uh, six home births so far, planning my eighth one or my seventh one with this eighth baby. And I have never hemorrhaged again. Not one single time have I ever even had just like, oh, that was one drop of blood too much. I've, it's been very simple, straightforward, manageable and everything else. So I just, I chose to have a natural birth uh, with a midwife out of the hospital with all six of my babies, all seven of my babies after that first one, and never again have I had a hemorrhage.
you know, is it okay if I make a little couple little comments on your story? Because I listen to these stories quite frequently. We, you're not the only one who has sought an alternative to that experience. And one of the first things that struck me about your your the, the telling of the story is that you didn't know what was happening to you. That you were using your own brain to figure out, to listen to the sounds, to hear other people's comments, to gather information. No one told you that you were having a complication and and then the doctor said this is going to hurt before they you know d- performed a manual removal yep. saying jessica you're bleeding too much it looks like there's probably retained placental parts i'm going to have to do this you know squeeze your husband's hand you know what it, they did not instruct you at all which to me I feel like that's how people get medical trauma and end up not wanting to go back into that situation because they felt powerless. They felt unheard. Nobody explained anything. They didn't know what was happening. It was all way more scary even because an already scary situation was made more scary by you not being informed. I mean, I would even call it informed consent. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you would have said yes, no one's going to say, don't save my life, you know. But I've said that in situations before. I have to do this because I'm responsible for, you know, getting you out of this alive. I, this is how serious it is. You know, people don't say no to that. No. Um, so that's the first thing that struck me, how um, they did not inform you. And then, you know, secondly, that they told you afterwards that this is how you give birth, basically blaming you and telling you your body was broken and that everything that they did was perfect or, you know, I mean, that's the, that's the inference is there's nothing they could have done differently. Right. What I automatically thought of was, you know, if I were that doctor, I would have said, you know, there are some things that we can do to prevent that situation. And one of them is active management. I think at that point in a medical scenario, you would have been a good candidate for that which means giving you an injection or some Pitocin in your IV after the baby's born. If they really thought that that's just how your body gave birth, then that would be a solution to that. And, you know, 21 years ago, I let you know, you and I have talked about this before, how just culturally in obstetrics culture, you know, that long ago that rushing the third stage was a very common practice so common that there are many others with stories like yours and it started showing up in literature it started showing up when people started making their birth plans and in fact you know years later it seems to have been consumer i mean i guess we're consumers in that situation demand that they not do that and so i'm actually seeing it less now because people learn to use their voice. They had bad experiences and they probably had bad outcomes. I mean, I would consider your outcome, even though everything was fine, not a desirable outcome. They caused a massive hemorrhage. So it's kind of shifting in my part of the world, which is Portland, Oregon, of course, progressive, you know, area. I couldn't speak to everywhere, but I'm definitely seeing it. I've been a midwife for as long as since you gave birth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I've kind of watched this progression of 
the shift away from this aggressive management of we have to get the placenta out immediately. And they, the funny thing is they're back then they would have told you it was to prevent a hemorrhage because you kind of can't see the bleeding until the placenta is out. So they would pull it out. They would want it to be over with as soon as possible. They would want to see they wanted to, uh, and in the in the midst of that, they were causing the very complication that they said they were preventing. So, those are the things that struck me about your story. And you know, I hear stories like this all the time, and I want people to know that just because they have these complicated stories, um, that it, it you know it doesn't necessarily preclude them from a home birth if it's if it's something like this. You know, if I hadn't talked with those midwives. And if I had just believed that this was how my body gave birth and what I would do the next time, I would not have learned that I was even capable of giving birth in a way that wasn't risking my life. I, cause I, I thought, I thought the doctor was wrong. I thought this cannot be right, but also mm -hmm. I didn't have anything else to base that off of. Mm -hmm. And it was that conversation, those many conversations with those midwives. And one of them I ended up hiring and, she became my midwife for that second baby. And uh, she supported me beautifully when I was, she knew I had a lot of anxiety about third stage. <laughs> yeah. And she helped me give uh, birth and really to my placenta, which was such a healing experience. There was, we agreed no cord traction. We agreed uh, that if anything needed to be done, that she would actually walk me through it. And the placenta delivery for that one was, so easy, so no, no big deal. And it took 20 minutes versus mm -hmm. with my first one, it took about five minutes, mm -hmm. uh, maybe. And nobody was in a hurry. Nobody was rushing anything. We were all chill about that one. And that was such a healing experience for me. And I am so incredibly grateful for those midwives who took the time to care for me, even over the phone, just through the interviewing process mm -hmm. to determine if I was even a good candidate for home birth or an out of hospital birth. And I'm so grateful that they, they offered me that level of care even before I was their client, mm -hmm. because I'm not sure if I would have been willing to to risk anything else. It seemed so risky at the time. You know, I when I tell my birth story and I'm like, you know, the truth is I kind of almost died. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that sounds, so the next one I chose to have at home, that sounds like maybe I have some issues <laughs> in making decisions, <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't fully informed when I was going through that experience. And then I had the opportunity because other people were willing to invest in me to make a fully informed choice. I knew how they would handle it if it were to happen again. We had some measures to actively manage third stage if necessary. Uh, we actually chose not to do a, a shot of Pitocin. It was something we sure. discussed. It yep. was ready to go, but we decided to see what my body would do. Mm -hmm. See what happens if you don't pull on it. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out. <laughs> yeah. It was totally fine and safe, and mm -hmm. I delivered that placenta just fine, mm -hmm. and I had no issues with bleeding. In fact, I recovered so much faster. <laughs> I'm sure you did after a massive hemorrhage where you got two liters of blood. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was huge. I remember being like, wow, I have so much more energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So that's how I came to, to natural birth. I, in many ways, feel like I got to have the birth itself in the hospital, all things considered, was really pretty natural, given that I was hooked up to IVs and I had blood pressure issues and I had all these other things leading into yeah. it. Uh, but the the second one was so much more low risk. My hyperemesis was much more manageable. I didn't have any blood pressure issues. I didn't have any kind of uh, premature rupture of the membranes or anything along those lines. It was such a boring, comparatively boring pregnancy and boring birth. And uh, it was just a way to be. <laughs> it was everything I wanted. Yes. No better time to be average. Yes. I was so grateful to be rather boring. <laughs> so that's why I chose actually an out-of-hospital birth. I chose an out-of-hospital birth because my hospital birth was a very traumatic experience. Uh, my partner and I will talk about our birth occasionally, that hospital birth occasionally. It came up recently with our kids. They were wanting to hear birth stories. And uh, we both, after sharing birth stories for our different kids, they like to hear them, then we like to share them. But we both realized we still have an element of trauma related mm -hmm. to that birth. Uh, he may be even more than me. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for him to recount that. Uh, he, he remembers me passing out. He remembers not being sure if I was going to live and mm. him not being told well, he didn't know what was going on either so no one was reassuring him and saying this is a hemorrhage here's how we're going to handle it and walking him through he was just in a panic zone and didn't know even the name of the thing no. you know um and that's that's huge so i'm a little bit surprised especially after our most recent conversation about how traumatic it is even to recount the story I'm a little surprised he was willing to have more children because it was so <laughs> incredibly traumatizing for him to, to watch me and not know if I was going to live through it. And wow. he yeah. didn't have any information. They didn't tell him anything hmm. uh, at all. It goes back to that. Um, you know, what I usually say to folks that are maybe have, you know, had the experience of, either having a birth in the hospital themselves or being with, you know, a sister or somebody, you know, like a family support. I'm like, we, first of all, in, in out of hospital birth, there are no spectators. Um, so we, you know, everyone has a job. We don't all sit around and watch TV. Right. And then secondly, you know, your main support person isn't going to have that feeling. And it's often a partner to support a birthing person who is birthing biologically. You know, there's so much work to be done and so much muscle that's needed that you just, they just kind of have this experience of they experienced it too, you know, in a, in a different way than, than you do as kind of a alienated bystander, which is often how people feel in the hospital. Right. And it doesn't have to always be that way in a hospital. And I'm glad no. for that. But unfortunately for many of us that are inspired to pursue a different option, mm -hmm. it has been our experience. They're getting better too. I mean, because 
because of hearing these stories and because we're not just in a culture where we're like, well, that's just how it is. Maybe our mothers, our grandmothers, you know, kind of had this experience of like, well, a doctor knows best and we just go in and we make this sacrifice in order to create a family. People are being vocal advocates for themselves and telling their stories. And so most OBs and hospital, you know, they're trying to be, there's the mother what is it called? The mother baby friendly. Yeah. The baby friendly initiative. Yeah. So it's kind of sparked a little bit of a revolution, I would say in hospital care. And so I fully think that people can have great and satisfying experiences in the hospital. Um, you know, but it takes kind of being educated, asking questions, picking the right person, going with your guts on who you want around you, looking at policies. It takes a lot of work. It does. It does take work. So let's talk about that. Why would people choose an out-of-hospital birth? I know people are surprised to hear from me that I had this severe postpartum hemorrhage and retained placenta and a very scary experience with my first birth. And then my choice was to go out of the hospital where I wouldn't have access to some of these measures and resources should something go wrong. And for Mm -hmm. me, my answer is, well, because it was so, it was a traumatizing experience. I chose an out of the hospital birth because I wanted something different. I was actively looking for something different. But what are some of the reasons people choose an out of the hospital birth? Yeah. Well, a lot of people have a story similar to yours, Jessica, or maybe not even medically traumatic, so to speak, but maybe just felt that they weren't heard or listened to during their birth or that things didn't go quite as planned or strangers ended up attending them. They, you know, they connected with one provider in particular, and then that provider was not able to attend them during their birth, or there were a lot of people in the room, or their partner felt alienated. There's, there's so many reasons that people choose it. And I think that the underlying reason in that is often to seek more personalized care. So all of those things are kind of around that topic. And then there's people that felt like yourself, that they were medically mismanaged or didn't, you know, maybe they had a baby that was even stuck, like a shoulder dystocia and, you know, their baby was, you know, pulled on or there was an instrumental delivery that they felt could have been avoided. Lots, lots of different things. And so we do often do little chart reviews with people to just kind of see. And, you know, I really try to avoid playing like armchair midwife, you know, so I, I, you know, I wasn't there, all of that. I just, you know, I really look at just like risk factors as far as like, how likely is this to happen again? And do we have have a plan. If something like this happened, what would be our plan for out-of-hospital management? So like yourself, for hemorrhage, we could talk lots about different options, including, you know, from the most kind of interventive, like, you know, doing an IV in labor and doing active management to a wait-and-see approach. And, you know, as long as we're all on board, I've done both and all, you know, for people that have a history like that. And then a lot of people just want to avoid unnecessary intervention periods. They fear that if they're in the hospital, that they will deviate from their own plan and choose to get an epidural or something like that when that's something that they really don't want. And so most people are looking for a less less intervention, less medical type birth. Unfortunately, I hear a lot of 
mistrust. People choose it because they mistrust. They either, maybe it hasn't been a birth or it has been some other type of care that themselves or someone else that they know have experienced and they felt was, you know, not handled in a way that works for them. So I hear that a lot, unfortunately. And you know, as long as everything's fine, I feel like those are, those are valid reasons to seek something else. And, you know, that's why it's so important to keep our choices open because, you know, somebody might choose a, an elective C-section and I'm for that too. I'm for being able to choose whatever works for you and whatever is going to meet your needs. It's not that I'm like, you know, want everyone to have a natural birth. I want everyone to have the option um, that suits them best. Uh, one of the things I've heard a lot through the Leaky Boob or the families that I've had the chance to support in birth in some capacity, one of the things they've heard a lot from them is that they just didn't feel that they needed a hospital because they weren't sick. It wasn't something that mm-hmm. was a problem that they were seeing birth as this normal biological event and experience. And as long as they were low risk and a good candidate for an out of hospital birth, they just felt that that was what was right for them. And that is a totally valid and really wonderful place to enter that choice from. I chose really, honestly, I chose out of fear I was really afraid of going back to the hospital and having that kind of experience again. And I didn't want that. So I was, I was specifically choosing to avoid something. I'm hearing more from people who are choosing to have something rather than to avoid something. And I, I think that we're seeing this shift or I'm sure you've seen it quite a bit, this shift, uh, but from, from, well, just a shift in normalizing out-of-hospital birth or natural birth and uh, natural pregnancy, natural birth experiences, uh, instead of a medical approach, a more uh, holistic yeah. approach. Like, it's just an option for low-risk people, right? It, it's just it's just kind of a fundamental change rather than, you know, like, hey, here, here are all the things that are on the table, so it doesn't have to be quite such an alternative-type choice. Yes. And, and that's how we would like it. That's integration, and that's how we would like it to be. In some of the countries with the the best, you know, statistics for babies and for moms, that's how their system works. So I think I think our goal as midwives is to have a more integrated system where low risk people are not shamed, are not called crazy or crunchy even um, mm-hmm. for choosing a really reasonable option, which is out of hospital birth, which includes birth center birth or home birth. So, you know, I think that's the goal. And the statistics are there to support that it is a safe option. If you are in the care of a midwife who is practicing uh, the standard of midwifery care, risking out people who are not good candidates for out-of-hospital birth, referring and transferring of care when that is necessary, uh, then really, if you are a low-risk candidate for for a home birth or birth center birth it's a safe option the statistics are there we see these numbers it is a really safe option and for me i know it's one of the weirdest things when people hear that i i had this really scary birth experience with a postpartum hemorrhage that i would choose an out of hospital birth afterwards but it was because i was low risk that i actually 
was a, it was a safe option for me to choose. And in, so far anyway, I'm not expecting my next one to be a problem, but I'm prepared for anything. I believe in being prepared, but I, I have had uneventful out of hospital births with no issues because it's, I'm a low risk uh, it, for an out of hospital birth. So it, it works out. So for those who are interested in perhaps having an out of hospital birth for the very first time, what should they expect during the birth itself in an out of hospital birth experience? What in the world happens and, and is what's in the range of normal and what do they need to be prepared for? Yeah. So, you know, most providers, like for, I teach a class to all my clients. I would encourage everyone to have a really clear expectation from their provider. Cause I feel like everyone's going to approach it a little bit differently for myself. I mean, I teach the childbirth education for our whole birth center. And so for us, we really make it clear that, you know, that people will be expected to do early labor, you know, at home and that that's normal. So, you know, each provider is going to have a different approach. Things, you know, good questions to ask are like, what does monitoring look like? You know, if you're going to a birth center, when do you go to the birth center? Do you go with the first contraction or are you going in active labor? For me and our birth center, we really encourage people to stay home during active, uh, during early labor. And um, we really provide a lot of education on what that looks like. So early labor is the very beginning part of dilation and it's, it can last a long time. It can stop and start. We want you to be in the comfort of your own home during that time. And if you're having a home birth, we often come to you and maybe listen to the baby, but we might step away again. You know, usually it means, you know, you're less than four centimeters dilated. And so we want you to be able to, you know, just doing everything that you need to do to make yourself comfortable without people watching you because we want it to grab hold and progress. And then once you're in active labor, that's when folks come to the birth center or the midwife comes to your house. We, you know, are tracking vital signs, of course. And now with this new situation, we're looking at temperature more frequently and definitely upon admittance or upon us arriving at your home. We want to listen to the baby really well. And then we ask some questions about, um, you know, when was your last meal, that kind of thing. And then we kind of back off. So something to know about um, out of hospital providers or midwives is we're not going to be telling you how to labor. So we don't say, you know, now is the time for you to get in the tub and, and, you know, do that. And then we want you to get out and be in this position. We really follow the lead of the birthing person to see what's kind of coming naturally to them. And then we can have some recommendations based on, uh, you know, what they're choosing to do. So for example, sometimes people will go and labor on the toilet for, you know, quite a while, which can be, you know, start hurting your butt or whatever. So I often flip people around and have them sit backwards on the toilet. That way in between, um, I put a towel over the back of the toilet so their belly doesn't touch the cold porcelain tank. And so that's just one kind of way that we can use the regular things that are around us at, in a home or in the birth center to be more advantageous for labor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll set a partner up. 
behind a mom or the birthing person to kind of be able to rub their back while they're in that position, light candles, dim the lights, you know. Um, so, so we don't tell you what to do, but we try to enhance what you do to be more advantageous for labor. In my practice, we take vital signs every four hours and more frequently if you have broken waters. Um, so that's kind of that risk management piece we're doing to make sure that things are still, reg you know, on par with your baseline and that nothing new is developing as far as, you know, infection and that kind of thing. We're going to listen to baby intermittently. So intermittently means not continuously. So often in the hospital, they do continuous monitoring. We listen with a handheld Doppler intermittently. Um, so in active labor, it's every 20 to 30 minutes. More frequently if you're a VBAC. So if you've had cesarean before, we listen actually every 15 minutes. We often be, like to listen through contractions and that actually gets more frequent. The listening gets more frequent as you get closer to having your baby. You know, we don't, what I kind of, how the, how I kind of describe it is like the midwife team is there to uphold your team. And so you guys are the star players. Your family and your chosen support people are the star players in this. This is not a provider-centered experience where you have to wait for us to do something or give permission for something. We are following your lead and our job is to uphold you so that your needs are met and so you can be your best support person and you can be your best birthing person and everybody can get through it so well held so you know our job we we um you know we're kind of setting the tone for everything that's happening so we kind of we call ourselves the gatekeepers and so we're definitely like reading the mom's kind of I don't want to say energy because that sounds weird but you know we're kind of using the birthing person as the guide so if you are very quiet and eyes closed you know, we're going to set the tone and probably be quiet and eyes closed, maybe even too, um, you know, just to kind of like lead the rest of your support people so that they aren't starting to chat and you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So we kind of help to use you as the guide and, and set the tone for the birth experience. You know, alternatively, if everyone's kind of in a jovial mood and we're chatting along, you know, I've definitely been at some births where we're just kind of having a little birthday party and we're quiet during contractions and chatty in between. Um, and then, you know, there's folks that just go in the bathroom and then that's our, you know, we're not gonna weasel our way in there and we tr try to inject ourselves into that experience if it feels really private. So we kind of, you know, we're holding the space for whatever's kind of naturally coming to the, the birth team. So are there any distinctives between a birth center and a home birth in terms of what to expect during the birth in an out-of-hospital birth? Are there, is there anything that's very marked in difference between those two? Not really, as far as the care that we're providing. I kind of call a birth center birth a birth at our house. <laughs> so we don't have any extra tools and that kind of thing per se, although we do have like a lot of equipment, <laughs> a lot of like disposable things and that kind of stuff. So we would bring that stuff to someone's home for a home birth. And at the birth center, it feels like a fairly unlimited supply of things, but at home, it's a little bit more limited, I would say. Right. And well, yeah. 
And the biggest difference, I've only done home births. I've been privileged to attend uh, a couple of birth center births. Uh, the biggest difference to me has always been the size of the tub. Yeah, there you go. There's that. I mean, everything is kind of all set up, which is really mm -hmm. nice. It's easy to clean. Um, and then the postpartum care, like at my birth center, usually people stay for about 24 hours after they've given birth. They're not cared for by me. They're cared for by a postpartum midwife. So it kind of shares some of the responsibility for the care and brings another person into the picture as another set of eyes and you know especially for people having you know their first or second baby sometimes I feel like that's really appreciated we just get to kind of pamper you and you know provide sits baths and order you food and that kind of thing so right. I do feel like that's one of the benefits of birth center birth for right. sure right and it really is gonna it's so individual as to what you're going to want. I prefer to stay at home largely because I don't want to get into a car when I'm in labor. And so I want to stay at home, but it's really, really individual. Some homes just are not going to be conducive to a, for a birthing environment. But in general, what you're saying is that in terms of what is available and what equipment and and the care that is provided there's not that much of a distinction between a birth center birth and a home birth nope nope we do all the same things the care looks the same the tools are the same we come in wheeling a little like we have a little tool cart that we like it's literally for four tools it's <laughs> four tools um, but ours has birth supplies in it also ask people to buy some of their own birth supplies, um, like a little kit. In my birth center, we loan out tubs, but some practices ask you to buy a tub if you wanted to, to labor in the tub. So, I mean, that part is a little bit different. And we do provide usually a home visit at some point. Most midwives, even if they're, you're going to their clinic for most of your care, they're going to come to your home and just kind of see your setup and, you know, you can kind of walk through. And at that point, you also make a an emergency transport plan. So obviously we have ours really lined out for the birth center. We know what hospitals are closest to us. We, we know what to do there, but depending on where you live, if an emergency arose, we may end up going to an unfamiliar hospital. We may end up going to, we want a, a hospital with a NICU and an anesthesiologist that are always there. So believe it or not, some of the smaller hospitals don't have that all the time. I think that's really surprising to people that there's there's hospitals that actually have to call in you know an anesthesiologist in the middle of the night and they also transport to these bigger hospitals so well we we will make a plan at that point too for what that would look like okay so let's talk about the equipment that's available at an out-of-hospital birth that the care provider the midwife uh, would be using if necessary what's the the wide range of equipment from the most simple thermometer to the life-saving piece of equipment that you either bring with you to a home birth or have available at the birth center? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our stuff we kind of have with us all the time. So we have things to take your vitals with. We have stethoscopes, thermometers, um, you know, blood pressure cups, you know, Doppler. We always have a Doppler, lots of disposable supplies. So sterile gloves, sterile underpads, suture, stuff. 
in this time of COVID, we're going to arrive wearing masks. You're going to find your whole birth team masked and gloved a lot of the time. Anytime we're providing face-to-face -face care, unfortunately, that's been it's been a it's been an adjustment, but that's how we're doing it. Instruments to cut the cord, oxygen, a bag valve mask setup called an Ambu tool, which is for resuscitation of the baby and and then a mask situation for the mom. We have IV fluids, we have drugs. So we have the life-saving hemorrhage drugs that you would have needed probably during your first birth for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Pitocin, mesoprostol, and methergen. Those are the, the drugs that we have. And then we also can do IV fluids and we can put Pitocin in the IV. So our use of Pitocin is different than a hospital where we don't use it to induce labor. We use it to control bleeding. Okay, so we're usually using it for an injection, an IM injection in your, like usually your thigh after birth if you're bleeding too much. Um, but we can also put it in IV fluids. We have lidocaine. If you needed to be stitched afterwards, we do numb you um, and, you know, so you're not enduring even more agony there. And then, oh yeah, and then the baby stuff. So baby equipment. We also have, oh yeah, the baby. We forgot about that. <laughs> we have drugs that you might uh, choose for us to give to your baby. So we will have urethromycin, which is the eye stuff. We have vitamin K, which is for, for babies' clotting factors. And we also do a neonatal screening test and a baby scale and all of the, the baby-specific tools that we'll need to perform a newborn exam. So we, ha we have a lot of stuff available to us. And kind of what I always tell people when you're comparing it to a hospital is like, we have all the first steps. So all of those first steps of things, you know, that would be needed to like bail us out in an emergency, we have all of that stuff. There are times when people technically have a hemorrhage, but we don't have to go to the hospital because we've been able to manage it and resolve it. And then also we're able to fluid replace. So we hang a couple bags of IV fluids and, you know, then everything's fine. So emergencies can happen at home, just like anywhere else or at the birth center, like anywhere else. And most of the time we can resolve them there. So it's only when we need ongoing care that we end up, you know, going to the hospital. That was great. That was great. I'm so glad you covered all that. Oh, good. <laughs> that was well, because it, it acknowledges that emergencies do happen in these environments, yeah. but they can be managed. It's not like, oh no, we have this. Call 911. It's like, right. oh, no, we're trained to deal with this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when a person needs to go to the hospital during their course of prenatal care, we call that a transfer. So that means that something, you know, risk factors have come up and we have acknowledged that this puts you out of a low risk zone and into a higher risk category. And we need to get you to a provider that's appropriate for that type of care. So that's a, that's a transfer of care. Now in birth, when an emergency arises, there's, that is called a transport. And there's actually two types of transport. So there's emergent, which means that the mom or the baby's well-being is at risk. Okay, so emergent means we're calling 911, we're performing emergency, whatever, maneuvers, um, whether that's in resuscitation, whether that's, you know, for the mom or the baby. And so that, you know, 
paramedics are coming in the whole nine yards. And then there's non-emergent transport. And that means that we have to go to the hospital, but nobody's well-being is at stake. So things like a a tear that is complicated would be a great example of that. So, you know, we can repair up to a second degree tear, but if somebody's rectum is involved, <laughs> we're going to take you to a surgeon that specializes in that type of repair. Now, right now you're not in any, you know, risk for losing your life or anything like that. We can go in a car. So often we'll call ahead in the, in this specific situation, like a, a tear situation, we often leave the baby behind with a partner or the, the rest of the birth team and go to the hospital, just the, the birthing person and the midwife. Which is great normally, but in this particular time when we made this recording, it's in the midst of COVID-19 and there's all kinds of social distancing and shutdown and all that stuff. And it's really wonderful that you could leave the baby in that case at home. You know, I think, I wonder what would happen. We haven't done this in COVID during the time of COVID, (laughs) but since we would be the one support person, I bet you they would let us come because you can only have one support person. So if we left the partner with the baby at the birth center, I bet you they would let the midwife come in with the mom and then discharge us afterwards. So the point of that is so that we can then be discharged and go back to the birth center, go back home or wherever we're going. Um, And so we've, we've figured this out through doing it before. Like in the past, we've brought the baby with us and then guess what? Now they're like, everybody's here. Let's just admit you guys. And then you guys can stay the night here. And then the birth plan is disrupted and they don't get to have that, you know, luxurious pampering that we were offering. Now all of a sudden they're, you know, in a situation they didn't want to be in. So we have figured this out over time. Right. Well, and when, when there's a medical reason to, to transport and admit that makes complete sense but when it's we want to do that also right right that's well that's what you want to do at that time but when it's a a non-emergent situation and the hope is to be discharged and go back to the birth environment and protect that golden hour as much as possible and those plans as much as possible it's not just about having this luxurious experience it's that's the care that was planned on and as long as it can still happen. And indicated, that's the care that's indicated. So um, we don't wanna get trapped into any kind of red tape I guess, you know, that's, that was kind of the idea behind it is, yeah, we do want you to have the butterflies and rainbows that we were hoping that you would have if possible. Um, but we also want you to have appropriate care. Right. And so we can provide, once we get that repair done, we are more than able to provide appropriate care in the intended environment. So, you know, it's just, it's taken us a little trial and error in our area. We have worked super hard with the hospitals that receive us to make sure that we are able, that we have cooperation from our receiving providers and that this is what people want. This is not our agenda that we are trying to push. This is actually what the people who come to us want. Since we're hiring them to provide the service, that's what we expect. So and it seems to be working. All right. So some of the things we hear regularly about concerns in an out-of-hospital birth environment are questions about what do we do about the mess? Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me, uh, what do, you, do you have to clean up the mess after you have a baby at home? And I have to say, I have never cleaned up any mess after giving birth at home. I've never done it. 
Nor should you. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, contrary to what people might think, we do not leave a mess. Um, so we have well laid plans for handling any of the mess, I'm using air quotes here, um, that comes along with birthing. So fluid and blood and um, that kind of thing. So we are using disposable supplies. A lot of the time we are using towels. We ask you to have some of those supplies on hand and you know, have some towels that you don't care about. We advise you on how to arrange your bed and how to prepare your bed so that you won't get blood on your mattress or any of that kind of stuff. And then we really leave as soon as the baby's out and everybody's fine and there's no, you know, bleeding is normal. You know, we're cooking you some food or <laughs> making you a smoothie and then we're doing laundry. Mm -hmm. We're basically leaving no trace. So, you know, we may leave with a load in the laundry, load of laundry that needs to be changed over, but it's, it's not actually that hard or even that messy because we've prepared for it. Right. right. So I think that people have this image in their mind of like, there's gore everywhere or something, but we really, <laughs> we really try hard to minimize that. And then here's a pro tip. If blood does get on anything, hydrogen peroxide gets it out. Yes. So I'm surprised that they did not teach us about that or tell us about that as menstruating people. This would have been really handy information to have, you know, many years ago. But I mean, I didn't learn about it until I was a midwife, but we do. But your kids know about it, don't they? Your kids yes, know. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you watch, magic. <laughs> I just uh, answered a question for one of my children the other day. So will hydrogen peroxide work on my white jeans? She had gotten blood on her white jeans. Yeah. Will it work? I was like, oh yeah, girls, the yep. sooner the better though. Just get it on as fresh as you can. Get it on there, blot it off, do it again, and then use a stain stick or one of those or some OxyClean. And this is why the birth center has white towels. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can actually clean them. So the mess one is always one that kind of cracks me up a little bit because I've had six home births. And you were my midwife at my last birth and I don't even remember mess. I gave birth on a birth stool. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, disposable pads called Chuck's pads underneath the birth stool. I gave mm -hmm. birth there. I have no idea if those ended up getting soiled or not. I moved to the I bed. <laughs> I never. I'm sure they did because there had yeah. to be fluid and, you know, but yeah. I don't even remember. It and wasn't I, an issue. I no, it wasn't an issue. I moved to the bed and some pads were slipped under me and the baby and I delivered the placenta there, and then I think when everything was great, everything was going fine, I was put in the bathtub, I got to cuddle mm -hmm. with my baby and do skin to skin and breastfeed her in the bathtub, and by the time I came out, my room was completely cleaned up, the birth stool was gone, the bed had been, uh, clean sheets were on the bed, and I I never saw any of it, I never yep. saw any of it. The so it's kind of our magic at the end. It's like we become the little like magic fairy cleaner uppers yeah. and like we have it down to yeah. where we're like, okay, she's in the bathroom, quickly strip the bed, put the fresh chucks on, fluff the pillows. Um, so we kind of have it down to a science as far as, you know, how to make things presentable. We want you to have the least stress possible and, you know, nothing stresses out 
you know, a, a, a mom, I'll speak for a mom because I'm a mom, more than, you know, looking across the room and seeing a big pile of bloody laundry, I wouldn't be able to sleep, you right. know, it would, it would irk me. So we, we take care of that for you. And we leave it hopefully better than we found it. Mm -hmm. I remember I, you brought me a drink while I was sitting in the bathtub and, and I came out to this beautifully clean room and I think you fed me and <laughs> my robe was warm. My robe yeah. was warm. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like after the baby comes out and everything's fine, it, the, then we're celebrating, right? right? So now we're having a birthday party and you know, not that we're, we're, you know, we've got music playing or anything like that, but we're just, we're just in that warm kind of afterglow of success and triumph and, you know, trying to just kind of create this warm and beautiful moment. So yeah. and it that's really, my favorite part. It's mine too. I love it. And it, no wonder I keep having babies. Um, <laughs> okay. Maybe that's not why I have the babies, but it's right. certainly. <laughs> All right. Pain management. That's another common question about an out of hospital birth. What do we do to manage pain? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you mentioned when you told your story, another thing I was thinking about is how unfortunate for all of the people that have had to be kind of strapped with this, you know, with either a, an electrode in the baby's scalp, an IV, uh, you know, monitoring heart rate, you know, things, all these things, all these things that are kind of holding us back from having a free range of movement. So the number one thing is in this type of biological birth, you can move your body the way that your body asks to be moved. And so that goes a really long way as far as, you know, helping, helping with pain. So in, if your body commands you to get on your hands and knees, and that's the only way that you can get through it, you can do that really easily because you're not strapped into anything. We also use water quite a lot. We use heat um, so heating in early labor, I love a hot water bottle, just like it helps for menstrual cramps. It can help with that crampy early feeling and then soaking in a warm body of water, whether that's your bathtub or our beautiful tubs at the birth center or a hospital a whirlpool room <laughs> or your shower. I mean, a shower does wonders as well. Just kind of standing there and letting the heat run over you. That's a thing. I usually call it stations. So, you know, spending a few contractions on a birth ball, spending a few contractions side lying in bed with pillows between your knees, you know, just kind of a, a little circuit of things. I try to always think about, you know, the three R's of labor, which are rhythm, relaxation and ritual. So creating, you know, trying to find what people naturally do. So lots of, lots of people in labor naturally kind of rock. And so we'll just encourage that here. Yes. Use that movement, keep swaying your hips and believe it or not, it actually helps to counter some of the discomfort. Vocalization. So rather than trying to keep you quiet and trying to keep things manageable and keep everyone comfortable around you, um, we actually encourage you to use your voice, not screaming in agony, but, you know, kind of toning with the contractions if that's helpful. And for some people, it's going to be really helpful. Other people are really quiet during birth. So we're just going to kind of use the tools that we, that you have. You have all these coping strategies built in. They're all locked in your primitive brain. And so kind of getting out of your own way, getting out of your head, letting us do the, the mental work 
for you. The, the, the front brain, you know, keeping you safe. You don't have to worry about those things. We're going to worry about that. You just answer your body's call. So those are our main strategies. And then of course, loving support, having people there by you that are, you know, that are, that are with you, that you feel like are with you. So you don't feel alone. Education. We do lots of education ahead of time. So really kind of understanding what is happening during different stages of labor, understanding some of the psychology of labor and how your mind kind of goes to a different place and how you might feel hopeless at certain times or lose track of time, different things like that. So those are our pain strategies. And they, they really do work. It's amazing how much is already in us. I love how you said what you already have. There are some options that you have at the birth center that may not be available at home. Could you tell us specifically, I know, uh, like gas and air. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I love that you called it gas and air, just like on Call the Midwife. Can, can uh, you tell I'm a fan? <laughs> Um, yeah, so we have we do have nitrous oxide at the birth center. It's also called laughing gas or gas and air, and it is nitrous oxide mixed with oxygen, and it is self-administered. So it's not something that's like strapped to your face. It's like a a, a mask that you hold up to your face and administer yourself. We rarely use it. We don't use it that often at all. But when we do need it, it is it seems very helpful for some. You know, it basically goes it's a straight it goes straight in your respiratory system goes straight crosses the blood brain barrier and so it only works on your head so you don't actually feel an anesthetic quality so it doesn't numb the pain it makes you not care about the pain as much and helps your body to relax mm -hmm. so i've definitely seen it work it's magic in that you know it kind of like gives you enough of a break that you can kind of break that fear pain cycle or, you know, a panic cycle and start relaxing and then, you know, allow yourself to progress. So it's not something I see people doing from like the first contraction, but it's often a tool that we can use, you know, if we're either at the crossroads of looking for pain management, as in maybe going to the hospital for non-emergent transport um, or looking for a break or, you know, kind of looking at our options for dealing with a birth that's taking longer than we thought. All right. So I shared my story earlier and bleeding was a big part of my story. That does come up. I hear often when people are concerned about an out of hospital birth experience, what do you, you've talked a little bit about the medications you have available, but what else is available for an out of hospital birth to the care provider in managing uh, bleeding? Yeah. Um, you know, if it's a true hemorrhage, then, you know, drugs are the drugs that we have are a big and helpful part of it. Um, so, but we, we have lots of strategies for obviously bleeding is a big and com fairly common postpartum complication. So we have IV fluids. We're also looking at the three T's. So we're looking at um, tissue. Is there anything left in your uterus, like your story where you had um, placental fragments left? Often there'll be clots inside the uterus that kind of hold it open. So our goal is to make that uterus contract and that's how the bleeding is stopped. And then thrombin. So is there any kind of underlying bleeding disorder going on? That's an out outlier, right? And then tone, is there 
tone in the uterus. So is the uterus contracting or do we have a uterus that's tired and having a hard time contracting? So we can either do that manually, but usually we do that with drugs and then fluid replacement. So I feel like we have a lot of tools for hemorrhage and most of them are handled pretty swiftly with just like one IM injection of Pitocin. Right, right. And the amazing thing for me has been having had that experience of hemorrhaging and always, it's always been something that I, I'm a little bit concerned about happening again. Birth, we're newly concerned, right? right. So we never are like, nope, it didn't happen before. It's not going to happen this time. Every birth, we have a new concern. Right. <laughs> But every single time there's been checking of my uterus, there's been the massaging of the uterus, which gets a bad rap as being this horrible experience and it's certainly not enjoyable. But every time there's been active management, which is the first step in preventing it from happening in the first place. Well, once the baby's out and fine, that's our first order of business. That is exactly what we're looking at next. Next, what's bleeding like? So we'll do, you'll notice that we're taking your pulse and that's like a really quick thing. You'll just like a midwife reach over and feel your pulse real quick. And that's one of the ways that we can tell besides just looking with our eyes, if bleeding isn't within normal limits. So, you know, we'll look over and see, you know, or, or taking your blood pressure. So we're able to kind of use your vital signs. Are, is everything normal for her? Right. Right. All right. Then last question. Are there procedures you can't do in an out-of-hospital birth? Are there there's measures that cannot happen in an out-of-hospital birth that may make people choose a hospital birth if they really want this thing to be available to them? Absolutely. Well, the number one thing that we can't do is a cesarean. <laughs> um, <laughs> most people are there because they want to avoid that. And it's sort of the, for birth complications or baby problems, it's sort of, you know, one of the things that can bail out a situation, right? So we need to have an emergency transport plan that's appropriate for the setting, right? Because we, 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 we don't want to be in that situation, but we might need it. So we need to be able to get to it quickly. So that's one thing. We don't do episiotomies, not that we can't do them, but we just don't. You know, that's for one thing, not something that you necessarily have to worry about at a home birth, getting an unnecessary one, but also, you know, it, it's, it's just not something that's needed all that often. For which I'm grateful. <laughs> and no epidural. If you really want an epidural. Oh yeah. Pain medication. Duh. Um, yeah. So an epidural is not available. At, um, and most people kind of know that one, like, you know, back in the nineties when people didn't really know what midwives were, we would literally start from the question, what is a midwife when people came to talk with us, like they just didn't even know like what the definition was or anything. Most people, because of things like the movie, The Business of Being Born and people like you that are out there sharing their stories on, you know, social media, most people know that one, but yes, there, we have no narcotics whatsoever. <laughs> so you can't knock somebody out. That's right. Alrighty. Well, I think we've covered everything as to why people might choose an out-of-hospital birth and what to expect during the birth in an out-of-hospital birth. We've kind of covered a lot of information with this today, and I'm hoping this answers some questions. 
for our listeners, if you have any further questions about an out-of-hospital birth, why somebody might choose it or what to expect, if you have some specific questions, please let us know. You can email us. You can comment uh, below on our podcast, and we will be looking for questions to include in our next episode of Midwife Speaking. I am Jessica Martin-Weber, your host. This is Midwife Speaking. Our midwife is Carrie Duncan, CPM, Certified Professional Midwife in Portland, Oregon at Andalus Water Birth Center, and well, my personal midwife, and she's amazing, so... It's been fun. Thank you. I can't wait till our next episode. Okay. Thank you. Bye, everybody.